But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And we drop down to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Let's pray. God and Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears today. You know that you are the God who raises us from death to life. And so we pray that you would do this for us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are softened and pliable so we'd understand, we'd accept your word and we would indeed live by it. We pray for your grace during this time. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title of the message today is Marks of Godly Men. And what we're going to be discussing today is very closely tied to doctrine. Sound doctrine. And so, I was thinking of some examples that we could give to kind of quickly make this concrete to all of us. So we could follow quickly and understand and I was thinking about the different doctrines and uh, different stories tied to doctrines that I've come across over the years. And there were many, many examples that I thought of. I actually had trouble narrowing it down. But I thought of this one example. I thought of a gentleman by the name of Keith Giles. Keith Giles has a website called KeithGiles.com. And he says many, many things on that website. And one of the things he says is that there is no hell. And some people have been convinced by that, by what he has written over the years. And Keith Charles says, among other things, that if there is a hell, very likely it's not a hell that people would go to and be separated from God for eternity. He says, based on his interpretation of the scripture, if there's a hell, and he puts a big if there, but if there's a hell, People will be separated from God and maybe suffer for a time. An unspecified time, but not eternity. And I thought about another group that's becoming popular. Actually, there are many groups, but they're related. And these are the groups that link our salvation to race. And there are some people who actually believe, these are people of African descent, they believe that only African descendants can be saved. And they would preach that people outside of their race are actually the devil. And they actually have no soul to be saved. And when I thought of those two examples, those would be two doctrines from two, two different people, two different groups of people. And when you think about those examples, you realize that doctrine really does matter. Because it sets our heart and it causes us to live in certain ways. I'm sure the people who are being convinced that there is no hell are probably living as though there is no hell. And there are consequences that goes with that. And there are people who are being convinced that people don't look like them, that their African descendants can't be saved. So imagine how they would treat others outside of their race. Or think of what they would not do to someone outside of their race. Someone who they believe doesn't even have a soul. To them, that person would be just an animal. So doctrine 
really does matter. And that's what, in part, our text talks about. So if you look at Titus 2, verse 1, right away, the first word should jump out of us. The first word is, but. And I'm going to take you back to your primary school days, when the teacher used to teach you about conjunctions. Okay, so they taught us that but is a conjunction. It joins two thoughts together. So we know that we've come in in the middle of two thoughts. Okay? We're about to get a thought, but that thought is connected to a thought that already came before. So, like a good student, I would make my primary school teachers very proud. I think we should go back just a bit so that we can understand the full context of what we're about to read. And also, so that we would uh, get the full meaning of the second part of a two-pronged point that is being made here. So if you turn back to Titus 1, let me just read verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So right away we know who is talking, who he's writing to, and the reason. We're told here that this is Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing to the elect, those are those who are saved within uh, within Crete in this case, and he's writing to them through through Titus. But the reason is what I want to emphasize, the reason why he's writing. He says he's writing for the sake of the knowledge of truth. In other words, he's imparting teaching to them. He's teaching doctrine to them. And doctrine is the word of God as told in Scripture that's rightly or correctly interpreted to tell us what we should believe and how we should act. But he isn't just giving them knowledge for the sake of knowledge. He's giving them knowledge for a purpose. And again, he's telling us, he's telling us what that purpose is in verse 1. And he says the purpose is so that they would have a result of godliness. In other words, that they would live godly lives. So he intends for them to take this truth, understand it, and then live by it. Now, Paul is writing to Titus. Titus had been on uh, missionary journeys with him. And he's left Titus behind, in this case, in Crete, to teach the Christians there and also to put in place elders in the church in Crete. So Titus is to put in place elders throughout the towns of Crete. But he encounters a problem. First Paul tells him in verses 5 through 9 the qualifications for these elders. And the problem we see in verse 10 is that there are many people, not just one or two, not just a few, but there are many people in Crete that are living contrary to these qualifications. All right? So Paul tells them in verses 5 through 9, how these elders are to look. And he says, this is why I left you to Crete, so that you might put 
what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. But in verse 10, we see that there were many who weren't doing that. There were many who were not that. Instead, Paul says that they were insubordinate and he calls them empty talkers and deceivers. These were men who did not hold to sound doctrine. So Paul actually makes the point in verse 16 that they profess to know God and they say that they are Christians, but that was as far as their Christianity went. Now, uh, I guess in the Bahamian vernacular, we would say that mouth could say anything. So they would say they're followers of Christ, but their actual work, the works that they were doing, their actions betrayed what they were saying. And that's how we know who someone is. All right? Putting aside their words, look at their actions. And our actions tell us exactly where our affections lie and where our heart is. So these teachers were saying one thing, and they were doing things contrary to what they were saying. And they became marked as ungodly men because of what they were doing. All right, so if we look actually at 5 to 9 again, we see that these were the things that they were not doing. But instead, they were marked as ungodly men. So Paul has shown us clearly in just a few paragraphs that there are two types of doctrines. There's a doctrine that men hold to, uh, or, or man-made doctrine, I should say. There's a man-made doctrine that really is created by men. And they just make it out of nowhere, they make it up, or they use scripture and try to twist it to conform to what they want it to be. And then there's also sound doctrine, which is, as we said before, scriptures that are correctly interpreted that tells us how we are to live and what we are to believe. So Paul is telling Timothy, as he's telling us today through this passage, that the godly man holds to sound doctrine. And the godly man does not try to make the scriptures conform to his ideas. Instead, the godly man conforms his ideas to scripture. And that's where we pick up in Titus chapter 2. That's where the but comes in. So, Paul is pointing to these ungodly men that we read about in chapter 1. But he says, Titus, as for you, you are to be different. He says, where they are teaching false doctrines, you are to teach the truth. 
and he says to Titus, where they are not following up their words with the proper actions, they're, they're not following up their words with godly living, you are to follow up your words with godly living. And that's my first point. The first point is, the godly man is shaped by sound doctrine. Also, the godly man is marked by godly actions. So let's look at how the godly man is marked by godly actions. So Paul moves from speaking in broad terms to speaking in more specific terms at this point. First he says broadly that we are to hold to sound doctrine. And then he specifically points to teachings for specific people in the church. When we look at the teachings, I believe it's instructive that Paul first begins with the older men. Of all the people he could have started with, of all the groupings in the church, he chose to start his instructions in godly living with the men, the older men. When we look at his teachings, I believe it's instructive that he puts an emphasis on the older men. So the text implies that the older men have a larger responsibility in exhibiting good character and godly behavior. So we have to, and I'm I'm including myself in the older men, that's why I say we have to be brothers' uh, examples. We have to lead by example if we are older men because we have a larger responsibility for how we are to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ. And I believe that one of the biggest failings of older generations today is that we like to point at the younger generations and we say what they're not doing right and all the things that they're doing wrong. But we forget that we have a part to play in what the younger people are doing. We've forgotten that we were responsible for teaching them the way that they should go Uh, We were responsible for being the examples to them so that they could know which way to go. And so we are complicit in any of their failings. We often criticize young people, but we can't talk about the young people unless we talk about the older generation as well. We are to lead by example. So Paul addresses the older men at the beginning Secondly, I think it's also instructive if we look at the list of things that Paul says to the older men versus the list of things that he says to the younger men later on in verse 6. He has a lot more to say to the older men than he has to say to the younger men. Again, it shows the weight of the older men in the body of Christ. Uh, Christ himself told us that to whom much is given, much is expected. So older men, we've been given more years We've been given more experiences, and so more is expected of us. It's expected that over time, we mature to the point where we can exhibit these godly marks that Paul is pointing to in Titus. And I think if we consider what is given to the younger men and what's given to the older men, it's also instructive that this isn't a 
a magical thing, all right? To be marked as a godly man isn't something that happens overnight. Uh, for the young men, they have one single thing that Paul says to them. But to the older men, there are more and more things that are added. And implies that this is a process. Right? It's not something that happens overnight, the moment we are, are saved. It's a process, and the process is sanctification. So in the sanctification process, Paul tells us how older men are to be marked as children of God. And he tells us how we can see evidence of our faith and how others can tell that we belong to Christ. He says, we as older men ought to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. And one thing we should notice here is that Paul is not speaking in theory. He doesn't say to the older men that you should believe in being sober-minded or you should believe in being self-controlled. Okay? He says we are to be these things. Alright? He's not talking about just having a head knowledge of what someone's supposed to do. Paul expects, again, that doctrine will lead to our actions. It will affect us to the point that we live out what we believe. So, again, this is probably a good time to read Titus 1 and 1 again. We point back to Titus 1 and 1. We're reminded of a twofold phenomena. First, we're reminded that Paul is giving doctrine. Uh, he gives this for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth. But then he also expects a second thing. He expects that knowledge to accord with godliness. So Paul and also God expects that what we believe, what we teach, will affect us to the heart. And we will see true transformation. So that we are not only heard to be believers, but our actions also testify to what we are claiming. And to give you a, a quick example, um, we go into verses to remember, and today we did two verses, and uh, if I were to pick Exodus, Exodus lays out for us what we have come to know as the Ten Commandments. All right, but let's say I go to this with you today, and uh, when I leave here, I see a, someone driving a luxury vehicle, something that's very nice, something I've always wanted, and in my heart I want it. I devise a plan to get it. I attack this person. You know, all 140 pounds of me, I attack this person. I hurt the person. Maybe I even kill the person. But in the end, I get the car that I want and I drive off on it. All right? That would be the example of what Paul does not want. He doesn't just want us to have a, a knowledge in our head of what the scriptures say. Because if I were to do that, then I would have failed. It would be of no use to me to know Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, and to go out and be able to do what I just described to you. All right? I would have broken at least three of those commandments, maybe more if I really think about it. Okay? I would have coveted, I would have stole, I would have killed. And uh, 
That is exactly the opposite of what Paul intends when he's giving these instructions to Titus and to the rest of the people in Crete. Paul expects that doctrine will result in a true transformation. Now that's a hyperbole. It's an exaggerated example. I hope you get the point. So similarly, Paul is emphasizing that believers should not only be sound in their beliefs, but they actually must live by those beliefs. He says the older men are to be sober-minded, meaning that they're to be even-tempered. We shouldn't be flying off the handle at every occasion we have a chance to. But we are to show that we are reasoned people. And our thinking is to be tempered with the word of God. He says we to be dignified, meaning we ought to carry ourselves as though we respect ourselves, as though we respect others. And they should have a certain view of us because of it. Paul says we to be sound in faith. We ought to be strong in what we believe. By the time we are old and matured, we should be strong in what we believe. We should know what we believe and we should hold to it. And he says we have to be sound in love. And I believe that if we are sound in love, this helps us with the other marks of a godly man. Because if we are sound in love, we are guided by love and we look to help others and not to hurt them. We also have to be steadfast. Meaning that we are to resolve to stand in our faith. We shouldn't be strong in faith one day and the next day we're just blowing in the wind. We ought to be steadfast. So again, it's not about theory. These are the practical outworkings of God's word in us. We ought to do these things and we ought to teach them to the younger men. And Paul was not one who was just talking he actually led by example. Now, just think about it. He is writing to Titus. And in verse, in chapter 1 again, he identifies Titus as his true child in the faith. So Paul was a spiritual father. He was actually leading by example. Right? He was not just talking these things. He was actually doing them. And I think it's destructive that Paul had this spiritual son. He had others like Timothy as well. And uh, I recall that a few weeks ago, Lyndon pointed out that we had so many young men who are part of this congregation, part of this local church all the time. They're in our midst. And uh, in counterculture, as Dimitri and I lead counterculture, we always used to just think about how many boys we had, where the boys were far outnumbering the girls. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing. But it's also an awesome, awesome, awesome responsibility. An awesome opportunity. So older men, as we lead by example, we have to remember the younger men as well. And just think about it. Think about how you could be sowing into their lives. You know, do you take the time to now and then just stop and speak with them? Ask them about the things that they're facing right now? And can you remember the types of struggles you had at their age, whether you were a teenager or 
in your early or late 20s? Is there something that you've learned along the way, some experience you can share with them that would make their journey easier? Is there something that you can say to encourage them and help them along the way? That would be being guided by love. We are guided by love. If we are steadfast in love, we'll be reaching out to the younger men. We're called to disciple others. And we have a harvest right here in Kingdom Life Church. Let's think about what we're doing with that. Our pastor must point out that just yesterday, Donovan Hepburn was baptized, a very recent convert. And shortly before that, uh, his cousin BJ. You know. And so we see God working in the lives of young men around us. But we have a part to play as well. Uh, we're not just to leave them out there, to fend for themselves. But we ought to be as older men, showing that we are marked by God. We are marked by godliness. And helping the younger men along the way. And to the younger men, I see one or two here. There's a simple instruction to you. Just one thing Paul says. He says, be self-controlled. And it sounds like a simple thing, but it's probably the hardest thing you could tell a young man, to be self-controlled. Young men are infamous for being guided by their passions, for Seeing something, they want it, they jump at it. They don't think about the consequences. Often they don't even think about whether it's right or it's wrong. And Paul says, if you're going to be marked as a godly man, that's not how you to be. Paul reminds us, younger men, that you're to be governed by Scripture. We have to let Scripture inform our own thinking and our actions. We must be self-controlled. So young men, even though you only have one instruction, you shouldn't be content with that one thing. Remember, we talked about the process. You are to look at that list that's given to the older men, and you are to desire to have all those traits, all those marks of a godly man. You should be able to, at some point in your life, Add one to another to another until you've checked all of them off of that list. So Paul says, be self-controlled. And by that he means to find out what the scripture says is right and to live by that. And we can think of this in a similar way to what Paul says in Galatians 3 when he reminds us that the law was a tutor to God's people until we had Christ. Until we could look to Christ. So for the younger men, let self-control be a, a sort of tutor to you. All right? You must cling to self-control. So meaning that you might be doing something or not doing something simply because you know that to do that or to not to do that would be sin. But eventually, as you practice that discipline, a work is done in your heart. And you really begin to have a, an affection for the things of God. And you really want to do what's right until it becomes easier to do what is right. And your affections 
on your heart is aligned with the word of God. And so I uh, said earlier that godly men are shaped and marked by sound doctrine. And just to summarize that point and say it in a different way to make sure that we're clear on it, I'll say it like this. For the godly, our beliefs are shaped by scripture. And we become marked and known as godly men by doing what scripture teaches. I'm aware that among any crowd there may be those who Although you're in church, you're not believers. And if you're not a believer, then you can do things that are good and you can do things that are right. But unless you are called by God, unless you've been called out of darkness into light, there's no eternal value in doing these things. There may be momentary values, but we can never do anything good enough to earn the favor of God. And so you would not be among those who spend eternity with Christ. And if you're in that condition, I'd urge you to cry out to God and ask Him to do a work in your heart so that you would experience true repentance and turn from your sin and truly look to God and for those who are believers I'm going to urge you to truly live by sound doctrine let the scriptures inform your life not only no scripture not only no doctrine but to live by them and if we do that if we live by sound doctrine and we see the marks of godliness in our lives it will be for our benefit. It will also be for the glory of God. So team comes back. Let's pray.